welcome to the Shining Mind podcast. I'm Dr. Selena Bartlett and I'm a neuroscientist. And today we have some really exciting things that we're going to talk about. How is it that we can actually get the best out of people that are working either for us or people we're working with? I think the biggest struggle that I kind of see at the moment is that people have kind of lost um, trust in other people and they don't necessarily come to work feeling that great and then they kind of like do as little as possible. So I have a special guest with me today and he's going to introduce himself. My name's uh, Martin Betts, Professor Martin Betts, and it's really nice to be here with Selena. And he's had um, many decades of experience in different leadership positions around the world. And I just thought it would be a great opportunity to talk to someone that's worked in many different settings in different countries and has had a variety of different leadership positions. And we had a really interesting conversation that I thought that you would really be interested in hearing about uh, ways of leading people that aren't necessarily obvious, but that allow um, you as a person to draw the best out of somebody. So it's like, what are the tools and techniques you can actually take away for yourself? We learn um, to draw and understand the other person's perspective so that you can actually get the best out of them. So anyway, thanks for coming and joining the podcast, Martin. We really appreciate it. Good so to be here. what I like to talk about a little bit is, you know, that first conversation that you had around where you learnt some of these ideas from. Well, I think some of these things about leadership and understanding people, you learn every day from the experiences that you have with different people in different situations every day. And Sometimes you have light bulb moments where things seem to fall into place and other times you get really confused by things that don't seem to be as you're expecting them to be. Um, I think one of the benefits of experience and diversity in experience and length of time in experience is your ability to sort of make sense of things after a long period of time that don't make sense when sometimes or, or aren't full, you're not fully aware of while they're happening but you can look back at them and understand them in slightly different ways join the dots looking backwards yeah but i remember the conversation specifically that you had with me about your father and what you learned from him and i'd be really interested if you could talk a little bit about that story sure i think we all learn lots of things from lots of people but i guess our parents are our first role models in many ways so um and i had a I'm now working as a, an academic in Australia and have been working in universities around the world for 38 years, but my first experiences of leadership were in the most unacademic of environments with growing up, living, effectively living on a fire station in Essex in the UK, where my dad was one of the firemen. And I was born into a house where he was one of the firemen and every other house around us had firemen and firewomen living in, in them. So it took me till I was 10 to realise that there were jobs in the world that weren't firemen or firewomen. Um, because your perspective is so much shaped, shaped by your experiences. So, um, But the community of a group of firemen working and women working around the same station is quite an unusual one. You get exposure to the work of your parents in that way very intimately because you're seeing it 
every day from the end of the garden as the place of work was just beyond the end of the garden fence and the work colleagues were the, the mums and dads of your best mates that you kicked the ball with in the streets. So that's unusual. But the job of being a fireman is also very unusual in that there's a great dependency. I mean, turning up and not giving your best each day because you don't trust someone is not going to work when five of you are going into a building that's ablaze and you're trying to rescue two old people that are asleep in bedrooms you need everyone to be on their best game everyone to trust each other intimately in that sort of situation so I, I, that was the sort of environment where I first saw a role model um, being someone that was interacting with other people and it became even more strongly in focus when we used to live in number seven Jarman Road, our road, which is where normal firemen lived. And then after a while, my dad got promoted to be the station officer and we moved to the big house, number nine, two doors away. Um, and therefore, going from a situation of seeing your best, your, your dads and your best friends, mums and dads, being the peers of your role model to then being people that work for your role for your um your father in his new job as, as a as that new new role model he, he had a very acute leadership transition to do there of being best friends to suddenly being um responsible for those other people and it was a real insight into leadership yeah but there was something that you talked a lot about about his style that you really admired because he was able to draw out the best of people yeah, I, I, I mean, in that situation, you have to draw out the best of people. And in that situation, when you're suddenly the boss of, whatever the word boss means, people that have been your peers, you that people don't take much bullshit in that sort of situation. Um, there's a lot, authenticity is key. But it's also, I think, a situation where, for me, I, I very quickly learnt that it was very obvious to everyone in that sort of situation that people are different in how they behave and how they respond under pressure in the home setting they've got. This was like a little laboratory where because everyone's home setting was so different, Nancy was a single woman with 14 cats and and uh, John Baker was the father of two children, one of which had testicular cancer at eight. So they were dealing with very different things at home. And my dad had to be very sensitive to the fact that they were different people and empathetic to what their needs were as they were trying to come and turn up and give their best each day as from quite different backgrounds. And I think I learned pretty soon. I mean, well, I did go to Sunday school a few times. Um, and did learn of the adage of treat other people how you would like to be treated and I think it's the biggest mistake that any of us could make to expect that we'll be successful by treating everybody how we would like to be treated yeah. rather than how they would like to be treated. Yeah. I'd like to talk about that a bit further because I think that's a really important concept and I've never thought about it like that before because you know being raised Catholic and all of that that was kind of very much front and centre in, in kind of all of our religious education for growing up. Really, honestly, it's almost something that was said to you nearly every day at school in some way. And I think it does become part of your psyche in some sense. So, And I always 
did think about empathy as something like that, but I'm really interested to know. I really think this is a really important concept. So it's interesting that you said that's a part of a Catholic up upbringing, and I saw some. Um, reports once of how a saying like that is actually quite common in all of the world's religions not those exact words but it seems like it's something to me that has been encouraged in so much of our philosophy and thinking in various parts of the world and yet I think the way that we've learned to understand how people interact and, un and learned to understand leadership is that we're increasingly shining a light on how inappropriate it is. I mean the whole world of psychology and of learning styles and of leadership traits and preferences is that 16 Myers-Briggs personality types and whatever other way of measuring it, we are all different. Um, and therefore, the idea that any of us would treat everybody either how we want to be treated or in some magical way that's going to work for 16 or 50 different types of people seems a fruitless pursuit to me. So drawing out that kind of idea, so have you seen differences in like outcomes from trying that in different ways? Like, for, like have you ever seen that in real time where how you treated someone like the way you wanted to be treated versus you getting to understand how someone else wants to be treated? Yeah, I, like I, th in, I think... in leadership or... Yeah, I mean, I, I found it quite um, challenging and the way you, you like so growing up in a fire station being surrounded by firemen's families being in a very um got a humble environment then going off and going to a grammar school and going to a university and being with people that were from quite different backgrounds the the strategies and the ideas and the language and the behaviors that might suit having good interpersonal relationships with dale and bart and melvin and john at the fire station don't really work when it's people that have come from quite different backgrounds and you're in a university environment and then when you go on from being a student in a university environment to being a PhD student and a young lecturer and finding that you're suddenly encountering people from all over the world and you get the diversity and beliefs preferences and way people behave from all over the world and then I went as a 28-year-old to live and work in Singapore for five years and working in an Asian university environment with, Asia, with almost exclusively Asian students and mainly Asian colleagues, Chinese, Indian, Malaysian colleagues. Again, the interactions there were that people are very different and the communication preferences that they would have, how they would like to lead you and how they would like to be led by you. Um, it's became very, very clear to me very early on that things were very, and you make some huge mistakes in that situation. I think you make huge mistakes largely when you fall into the trap of believing that idea that everyone's like you and they want to be treated like you because you soon find that you're treating, you think you're doing the right thing by treating other people how you would like to be treated and finding out that's very different to how they want it to be treated and you get a sharp rebuke from it sometimes. So so how can you achieve like, from a, from a, just say you have a small business or running an organization and it has some pretty specific goals that have to be achieved. Like how do you, you know what I mean? How do you get 
the best out of people so you treat them the way they want to be treated but at the same time there's this kind of common purpose that has to be achieved um, well my approach in that sort of situation and again I found my first exposures to leadership I thought the task was for me to work out what we needed to do and then for me to go and tell everyone that they had to do it and this is how I wanted it done and then the second day when I realised that that wasn't going to work <laughs> you try some different approaches so in the spirit of the conversation that we're having I think if a small team or a group or a small business or a group that an organisation has got goals that need to be achieved by far the best way thing to do is to involve involve the team in setting those goals understanding why they need to be set set them for themselves and work out for themselves how they how we they will go about trying to achieve them even with the common goal at the top it's like how sure do you, how, you're the, working out interesting ways of getting there but people have got more investment in doing that i think so i think i see a lot of parallels between parenting and leadership because i think it's parenting is about creating an environment where you're helping people develop in this case your children and in leadership terms it's creating an environment where you're helping people develop which in that case is your colleagues or your staff or your supervisees and I think boundaries are important so the common goal is uh, we can't just all turn up and not do anything and enjoy ourselves well we can enjoy ourselves but we can't not work towards the common goal so let's accept that there are boundaries which is a little bit like the boundary of the 18 year old daughter that needs to be in by midnight it's about setting boundaries but then having people understand why those boundaries are important but then within those boundaries giving them a lot of flexibility to set their own goals their own targets and how they'll go about them I think you have to support people I think you have to you can't you can't choose your children or they can't choose their parents you do choose the people that you work with sometimes. And I think choosing great people with potential to learn, supporting them, giving them wings and then getting out of their way is a really important thing to do in leadership and to some extent translates into parenting as well. Yes, well, it's kind of in everything, really. Yeah. Including yourself, hmm. in a way. So have you got any like examples that you can think of where you've seen someone flourish because of doing this kind of approach versus maybe something another approach? Um, yeah, I, th I think there's been a number of examples in the different areas that I've worked. I mean, they say that I think this is a good mindset to have in leadership. I don't think this one translates into parenting so well, but a, a coach once told me that the best the best way of thinking about the success that you should aim for as a leader is not the state of the organisation when you leave it, but the potential that you leave it with, with the leaders that you leave behind. So I think having successes in your roles um, that you've helped groom potential in, who are able when you have made yourself no longer necessary to the organisation or have moved on for whatever reason, who by your actions can go on to be even more successful than you were in leading yeah. is the greatest greatest sign of leadership and yeah. would create a situation where you would want to be empathetic to others and focused on nurturing and development and focused on yeah and that makes a lot of sense doesn't it because things are changing like in the environment and 
you know, you can't just have things keep going the way you were having them go anyway. It's got to be a way where people can think of new ways of doing things. I think one of the biggest challenges I see in leadership, and the, perhaps this is where that empathetic, the need to be empathetic about other people comes in, is that if you're doing something really well, I think as you develop when you're doing something really well, you do, you do it perhaps not so well to start with, then you start to do it better, and then you start to do more of it. But you reach a point where there's a limit to how much more you can do, and so the, you're then reliant on what capacity you have to support other people doing the common goal that you are all working to. And it's a great temptation when you know how to do it to try and ensure that other people do it like you. And sometimes that works, particularly if they're like you, and often it doesn't, particularly if they're not like you. So if you've got limiting capacity of how much you can do yourself, it's changing that mindset from optimizing what you do to one of building capacity with a variety of other people to be their best. And I think that... Can you think of the time when this clicked in your life, like, and, and when you noticed the difference by doing that? Well, I, th I think... And is it by taking in coaching and all of these other things that have helped to do that? Um, I think coaching helps. Um, coaching and development programs that I've been on have helped give some framework and some and some structure and some language to some of these things. But I, in in my view, the best learning, the the biggest learning experiences. You, you're asking about examples of when this worked and success. And I think there are some of those along the way, but I think the biggest learning opportunities comes from failure. Um, because you soon know that if you try and lead in a certain way and it doesn't work, it becomes abundantly obvious. And then if you change the way you approach in response to that. So my first experience of leadership, and I think academic environments are particularly difficult in this regard because cultures are very um, collegiate and collaborative and democratic and critique-based, um, but also the training for leadership of a student who becomes a PhD student, who becomes a postdoc, who becomes a aspiring professor, is very much about not sharing, about doing it your way and advocating for your way against other people that see the world differently and keeping things close to your chest and only publishing them when you sharing them when you, you have gained advantage from it and that's the worst possible training for leading others that you're trying to build capacity and so my biggest and sharpest learning experience was when I first became a head of department after having been that traditional training academic to become a professor then trying to apply those skills when you're managing a team of 60 people they just don't work and then coming to Australia... I don't think this is specific to academics. No, I, I, well, I've only ever anyone, worked... Yeah, yeah. But, but I think the idea that leaders emerge from technical experts who are really good at doing a technical task... I mean, the, the famous quote of what get you here won't get you there, I think applies to the professor who's now turned to be, you know, the leader of a research lab or a research centre who's been made a professor and is succeeding as a professor because that's what they were doing there those those skills that got them there won't help them necessarily 
that it will be important for their prestige and the respect that they're shown from their other professorial colleagues, but the skills that they'll need will be quite different. And I imagine that's not different in a not so different in a corporate environment yeah. where someone has come. Kids transitioning to adults. Yeah, maybe. Where they're used to being told what to do, and then they've got to work out how to do it themselves. Yeah. Telling people what to do, whether they're kids or anybody, it's not my preferred way of doing yeah. it. Helping them, asking them questions to help them understand yeah, how they want to do it. Can you talk a little bit more about that, please, about asking questions? Because I think that's a, like people are looking for tools that they can implement, and I think that's a really effective tool. Like you're trying to work out what works for these other people, right? How do you actually work that out? And what you're kind of alluding to is that by asking people questions, that's how you can draw out how they're different from you, in a way, and what's going to work for them. I think it's a great technique, and one that I've seen from leadership courses and the like that I've been in, and, pra and try to practice a lot in different situations with kids, but also with colleagues and staff, that I don't, I, maybe this is where I'm falling into the trap of um, not treating others like they would like to be treated because maybe some people do like to be told what to do I don't um, I'd much rather work it out for myself have ownership of it almost in some way sometimes fiercely think about different ways of doing it from those that are seeking to tell me to do it in a certain way um, and then seek to prove people pr to prove to myself and to others that that was the way to do it and I think I think there are some others like that. Um, so, I mean, I guess the, the simple first question is, do you want to be told how to do this or do you want to work it out for yourself? The first question should actually be about working out what people's preference for how they would want to do things would be. But I think there are many, and more than we might realise, who would much rather work things out themselves um, set their own goals, set their own ways of going about things, empower, be empowered to pursue them. And then there's, it's in, quite incredible the the capacity that can be unleashed if you've got people working in a team or working as individuals trying to pursue goals that they've set using methods that they've devised. They're the ones that turn up happy, their best self because they've been you used the word in the introduction about trust which I think is absolutely crucial I've been in so many leadership environments where I'm not trusted where I have, I've been not trusted it's not been a trusting leadership environment and that definitely brings the worst out of you it puts you on your heels rather than the balls of your feet it puts you looking over your back it puts you being careful rather than I don't mean cavalier as an alternative to careful, I mean as, as, a, as a, a rather confident and innovative. Yeah. So I think trusting people, empowering I mean, them is I crucial. I think it also makes things very stagnant because you're just doing what you, want, you think they want you to do, which sometimes is not good for anybody. You know what I mean? Like if you're always trying to second guess what a leader wants and so you're working towards that rather than what they need. Or, or giving them, like you mentioned the other word that I think is big is feedback. I, absolutely. I think feedback, feedback is important at all levels in these relationships in workplaces and in interpersonal relationships and in families and parents and children relationships. I think, I mean, 
we are all different and we can we, we might be at different levels of proficiency and might get better over time of looking at other people and seeing what their preferences are and how they're responding it's quite hard to look at yourself and anyone that thinks that they can see themselves and understand themselves better than a combination of them and what everyone else thinks I think is in a very deluded situation so the gift of feedback of how you're being perceived by others and it's so hard to take well it's, it's hard to take if you see it as criticism and an attack rather than the gift of feedback yeah so how do you turn the, that around in terms of not seeing it as criticism but seeing it as a gift for people because some people that's another thing about other people right some people will just take it as criticism yeah well I think and it's like how do you do this in a way that is a gift I'm sure they talk about this on leadership courses and other things they, they do and I think it's it, it's the person that's seeking feedback that needs to make the biggest change there because if you and I Selena, are in a situation and you want to give me some feedback and tell me Martin, when you did that in that meeting the other day, the effect it had on me was this and this, and ever since then I've been a bit cautious and not done what I'd like to do. If I say, well, you should just pull your head in and stop being so stupid, you're probably not going to give me feedback again next week. Whereas if I respond to you by saying, thank you, Selena, I really didn't see that that happened, that's really helpful and it helps me understand why you've been going through what you've been going through, can you please, if that happens again, give me the feedback much easier? You're going to be in a completely different situation after that conversation about giving me feedback again. Yeah, because I have to say I'm terrible with feedback. Terrible with giving it or taking it? Taking it. I think most of us are. Most of us would probably be in a previous... M many of us like to be liked. And therefore, people saying, well done, Selena, you're doing a great job. Thank you so much. That was wonderful is preferable to Selena can I tell you how that could have been better but I think what we all need to learn how to do better is to see that the person that's giving us constructive critical feedback is much more of a friend to us than the person that's telling us they think they're wonderful particularly if they don't think we are yeah because they don't necessarily mean that they're reinforcing bad practices on our part yeah, well, that's what I have to do brain training on. <laughs> yeah, I think the brain training is the the, the need the, the people that need brain training there are the people that need to be more confident about giving feedback and the people that need to be more confident about receiving it. Yeah, and but the, but that's the interesting thing, right? The more you get, the easier it is to receive it and then you get used to it so it's like everything so if you lean into some of the pain of the beginning part of it then and I can already feel that for myself it gets easier and then you want more of it right because then you kind of start to see the advantage of the being able to take that feedback integrate it into your life try it out and see how it can make things better you know and you can see how it can take you into a whole different new stratosphere in a way well, I, th I think this is where that concept of learning from failures comes in as well, that failures is quite a dramatic word, isn't it? Um, and sometimes people can think about the prospect of failure and see that as a catastrophic yeah. event. But 
and that's I mean, what, and it comes from the media and everything too. We always put negative words out there. Yeah, but so perhaps I shouldn't be using it in this context. I mean, there's we've all got strengths and weaknesses, and the and knowing our strengths and weaknesses is good because we can then build upon our strengths when we need to and try and cater for our weaknesses. The problem is when we've got blind spots, when we've got lack of awareness of weaknesses that we have because no one's giving us the feedback and we can't see it for ourselves. And I think the failures or the or the thing the the, the points at which we stumble are probably when our weaknesses are creating situations where we're less than effective and unless we can understand that we won't we'll so, keep stumbling so for the audience because um, I, I totally think that as you know with brain training it's all about training the weaknesses like hitting the weaknesses and really training them the blind spots is, an, is I think are really important so how do you can you think of like specific examples or stories that you could tell about a blind spot and, and how someone how you, how you discover a blind spot um, and what you do, do about it and the and what kind of what something good happens from doing that, like by changing something? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I, th I, I think it often comes down to um, those personality styles again, doesn't it? So I'm a natural extroverted person and, um, and might be more judgmental um, in some situations. And sometimes you can be saying, you know, you're, your inner voice that suddenly pops out in making judgments of situations can really offend some people and in some circumstances that can be fun and funny in other circumstances it can be hurtful and damaging and I think as a, so knowing that you have that as a as a preference or as a tendency and being aware of it by doing one of these tests, personality tests, well, or seeking, or yes, and or seeking feedback from others, or and or recognizing that oh gosh, I was in that meeting the other day and I said that and it really didn't go down well, did it? Or I was having that conversation with somebody and when I when I described it in that way, which I thought was funny, they really didn't. It really destroyed some trust in our relationship. If, if, if that sort of thing sort of occurs to you and you can understand it often But that's enough. almost having meta self-awareness in well, a way. I think, I think the most effective leaders are those that are, have the greatest self-awareness. I agree with that, but then how do you help, how do you help people become more self-aware? You have to train in it, might I say, brain trainer. Because training in self-awareness by seeking, you know, having strategies for how you're going to do it, having strategies for how you're, you know, I think you can do this by, you might have situations where you're working in teams and there are four key people that you're interacting with in the team. One of them might be a boss, one of them might be a peer, and a couple of them might be people that you're supervising. And once you've worked out through self-awareness that they are four quite different people and what their preferences are, and how your preferences might leave you exposed with some were formerly blind spots in how you might interact with those four people you might plan strategies of how you're going to have interactions with and conversations with those four people in four quite different ways rather than the same way that you might have previously done as you follow this adage of treat everybody as you would like to be treated 
Yeah, and that fits really well with parenting and children, to be honest. It does. Because often people think all their kids are similar, and that's just so far from the truth, it's not funny. And that's why you end up with all these issues later in life. Absolutely. So the brain training you can do with, if you've got three kids like I have, or four people that you're trying to interact with, is experiment, try out the different ways and see how it works and seek feedback from those four people on how was it for them that help you refine and improve the style of your interactions. So that's a learning thing. It's a learning thing. Like honestly to get anything changed in your life or like even from a brain perspective, people recognizing they can train their own brain is that experimentation. Like if you being curious, you know, like about yourself that oh you mean it's not really gonna? It's not really like this. I can actually change all of that. You know, I think it's, it's the hardest part. Is that first step? Is that curiosity? That wanting to learn? That wanting to actually do it? That's the hard part. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, my if I look back at the later from the later stages of my career in the situations of leadership now, I can't believe how naive I was in my first experiences of not realizing how much I didn't know at the time and how much learning there was to be done and this quite often early leadership I mean we start being leaders in some ways from very early but the more formal positions of leadership often come after that period of technical mastery whether it's getting a PhD and publishing enough papers to be a professor or having run the marketing department for enough years to be looked at for the C-suite, whatever that, that process of technical mastery hasn't given us, it's given us some lessons in leadership along the way, but I think entering that transition from technical mastery into leadership with exposure to the need for and the benefits of self-awareness and commencing a journey of learning is the most useful way of entering that period. Yeah, and I'd like to add here about leadership of yourself. I I have this feeling, um, and I don't have any experimental data, but I really believe that people have the most leadership over themselves are some of the most effective leaders. Absolutely. I've got a very direct experience of this through coming to Australia 17 years ago now and being involved in some major change projects at different universities. The second time I went through that, the issue of um, getting to the end of a huge year and simply being physically exhausted at a period where I couldn't afford to be physically exhausted because mentally I I was physically and mentally exhausted. Um, And therefore the, the... the need to managing yourself by being evening out, um, you know, spreading out your and and saving energy for times when you really need it at crucial points in your leadership experience is so important. So this is the work-life balance. It's work-life balance, about, but, but it's also the, the the what you set yourself as the pace and expectations and leaving yourself and being realistic in that being realistic about just how much can be achieved in so much time. Yeah, but also if you're not looking after your brain and your body, everything else really is difficult to do too in the long run. Absolutely. It's a bit real, I mean, as you know, I let all of that go when I was running my lab uh, in San Francisco 
and that had a massive consequence on my life. So I've, I know that firsthand, but I think that really matters too when people deprioritize themselves in that sense, thinking it, that their work is way more important, but they don't understand that that thing drives much better work for, and for the people around them that they're working with. <laughs> Again, I couldn't agree more that um, I've had situations in my life where um, different physical or medical health challenges have come and gone and when you are best in your body and mind yourself is certainly when you're the most effective leader and probably the best parent and so trying to really fo if if being the best leader or parent is what you aspire to do then being the best you is an absolute prerequisite yeah. to that and that's the interesting I have these conversations all the time with people where they're trying to start a business and they're really, really stressed out and they've got little kids and all of these things, but they don't do the things for themselves first. They're, they're the things that get left last because of all of the pressures that you talk about. But but as soon as they start to reprioritize themselves and their health, then their business gets better. <laughs> it's really funny. I think there's a reason why every time we get on an aeroplane, we're told to fit our own oxygen mask first, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So um, I want to talk a little bit more about how, how some more, like we've got, so so far we've come up with two big tools that people can use. One is ask questions, like ask people questions. That means you've got to actually be curious about other people. <laughs> yeah, liking people is a great help. <laughs> <laughs> and Some people don't. <laughs> no, I feel really sorry for them. <laughs> And, but there are people who don't get their energy from other people. At all. I know. So, but but it, that doesn't mean that they can't be effective leaders. No, well, they actually can be very effective too. Um, but they still... Um, thinking of questions that they could ask people mm. if it's not their inclination right now to do that. Mm. So if you know, we're trying to help people become more curious or learn whether this is going to help them. So, like, is there a question you can think of that they could ask someone to try it out that would might be useful? Um, well, I, th I, th I think so. I mean, um, I, I think most of us would, would find most other people that we meet would have something about them that we would have an interest in if we took time to find it out. So... Um, Starting an interaction with somebody by telling them what, how you're feeling and what you think is, is likely to close them down. Starting a conversation with somebody by asking them how they're going and what they think and what they're feeling. I think even just noticing what, you know, something they've got on their desk or something they're wearing that's very unique for them is a really good, easy way to start. Oh, so easy. I mean, I don't think there's many people that we would do that with whose desks that we might find or conversation we might start with a question to who we wouldn't find something of interest in. And the fact that people are just... People, people, most people want to be noticed and heard. And so it doesn't take much to have people being noticed and heard, yeah. just remembering their name, remembering when you've seen them before, paying attention to what they're having a sense of what they think is important and recognising it and acknowledging it. Yeah, so that's one thing, one tool. And the second tool is about, um, uh, what were we talking about earlier? Um, I 
just escaped my mind. I mean, one very simple thing with that, with people Feedback. that you're leading, is, um, you know, knowing people's partners' names and children's names and their birthdays is really not that hard (laughs) to find out and to make a note of and be reminded of. And the second thing is to to be able to start to learn to accept feedback, like through training and practicing. Yeah, and encouraging uh, encouraging an environment in which feedback is welcomed and seen as a gift. So um, that's where the qu- asking questions bit can be so important. That if you're with somebody, you don't have to like them to be able to invite them to tell you what they think and to really stand and stand to benefit for, from it. And people asked who are asked to give their their impression and their feelings feel really good about being asked, usually. So can I ask you also, um, you know how you said everyone wants to be seen? They want love and attention. Love is a strong word, but it's the same idea. So that really like, comes back to, in, in my book basically, that's the sixth principle in my book, is because the reason for that from a neuroscience perspective is that basically the brain's wired for all of this you know, survival brain and without getting m- many people like almost 80% of the world isn't parented in the way that you think that they are they might have parents but it doesn't mean that they got the love and attention that they necessarily needed biologically from between the ages of zero and three and so that often means that people actually are spending the rest of their life seeking that kind of attention. So from a neuroscience perspective, that's where that element actually comes from. Right. And so that's why I talk a lot about how you have to drive in that into the brain because it's not actually there. Mm. So because the brain processes negative information at 10 times the rate of positive information. Is that right? And that's why in the media and everything, why these things, I guess coronavirus is rather relevant right now, why it's playing so so big now, because the news cycle, social media, everything's so amplified now, and it's all negative information. So we're not hearing any of the positive stories of all the people that are actually surviving the virus or anything like that. There's a lovely story of, um, it's now a week or two old, of in um, the area of China where the coronavirus started of someone that ran a marathon around their kitchen table or something inside their own apartment. Really? What a great demonstration of really? positive thinking and adversity that is. Yeah. But yes, it's a rare, I agree with you, it's a rare positive story yeah. and uh, many negative ones. So um, just lastly, um, let's just talk a little bit about transitions between like moving countries and helping people because there's a lot of people that listen to this podcast uh, around the world and uh, and now our job situation means that we have to move a lot for our job so can you talk a little bit about some of the positive things you did when you arrived to a brand new country to make the experience better than say you didn't like hang around uh, for a long time and hate it and just want to go back to your old situation um I th- well I, th- I th- so I've moved between continents now one, two, three times, um, and it's the the, the the I moved from the UK to Singapore, the Singapore back to UK, and UK to Australia, and the the movement of all of 
those I found most difficult was going back to the UK from Singapore. And it's only occurred to me, looking back on it over time, that that was because in that move, I thought I would know what it would be like where I was going and therefore had a more closed mind to a sense of adventure and wanting to find out. And it proved to be really ill-founded because I've been away five years and things have changed and I was now a returning national but didn't have the continuity of residency. And I actually, I actually suffered more culture shock going back from Singapore to the UK than I ever did going from the UK to Singapore or the UK to Australia. And I think that's because the other two moves, going to Singapore and Australia, I did so with a great sense of adventure, an open mind, um, a desire to find things out, a desire to ask questions, a desire to fit in. Fit in by um, associating with and connecting with the place that I was going to. And so from my little sample of three such moves um, and the... And the learnings that I had from the things that I didn't do well going from Singapore to the UK I think the best there's so many opportunities that come from moving countries or moving around the world and I think they can be maximized by having that sense of adventure and and embracing what you're going to yeah so the, the, now this is the other interesting thing the same for brain fitness and neuroplasticity it's exactly the same thing take an adventure, ask yourself a question, see just how much your brain has a capacity for change. And it's like, because this is the hardest part of what we're kind of trying to start, the movement we're trying to start, is because people have never been taught that they have that capacity. They've been kind of shown that they're stuck with the way their parents were, their aunties were. They don't believe that they can actually recondition their whole brain into a whole new pathway. So this is what we call, advent that's what the podcast is all about, Adventures in Neuroplasticity. Oh, trying wow. to come up with different tools and techniques and ideas for people to grab hold of and resonate with. And it's the same concept that you just came up with, exactly the same. You go back to a place, you don't have the curiosity, you don't take the adventure spirit, and next minute you're just like doing what you think you should have done when you were first there, you know, like 10 years ago or whatever. And the same for the brain, it's exactly the same. We kind of think that we're, there's no way to keep being adventurous with what we're thinking and trying and doing. And, um, and then trying it out in the same way, and then missing out on that whole new kind of what we like to call in astrophysics um, and uh, quantum physics, um, is there's this whole other uh, multi multiverse kind of um, pathways that you can either close down or open, depending on how curious you are, basically. It's weird, isn't it? I mean, what, what, the way that this plays out for me, most obviously, and I can't believe that I, I can't, well, I can break out of this, but it's, it, it, the, the natural settings are that you don't. When, whenever I go back to my parents' home now, I find myself sitting with my two parents, and we sit in the same seats in relationship to each other and have the same practices and conversations as though I was still a 15-year-old. And yet the three of us can go to a new environment, a road trip to Scotland together or a holiday to New York City, and we'll behave completely differently with each other. Yeah. And so it's just that setting where you... And so the, the danger is not creating enough sense of adventure in the conventional settings that you normally are. And it's quite hard to do because you've got the dy dynamics of 
lots of different people who were in that setting. Yeah, and so the, the key is to have the curiosity and the adventure to know to try something different. Well, you, you need know? to give it a catalyst or a stimulus yeah. which shakes up and breaks up the normal yeah, routine. Exactly. And without that, it's really hard to yeah. keep it dynamic yeah. and exciting. And it's really important. Well, it is because if you do keep it dynamic and exciting, it's exhilarating and fulfilling and great learning. And, and also, if you don't, you're going backwards. So this is the thing. This is the, this is the interesting thing that I've discovered because um, you know I've been studying the brain for 30 years and basically people think that staying safe and doing the same thing and staying the same routine is actually safe but it's actually going backwards from a brain perspective for sure. because with aging um, the brain has the brain just stops working and so the, the way the synapses communicate with each other just breaks down so what you're discussing here is something that's really important because that novelty, the adventure and the curiosity actually keeps the synapses alive and active. And if you don't do that, then the brain just stops working. You know what I mean? And then you actually, what you see in life is people start to peel off the onion layers. They actually drop things. They start dropping things instead of actually putting new things in. And yeah. it gets harder the more you drop and to a point where you just give up. And I've seen this in, in so many people's lives. And so partly why we have the Shining Mind podcast and why we're trying to, you know, as you're trying to help me um, deliver the message in a much more peaceful, happy way, harmonious way that other people <laughs> understand <laughs> and enjoy. You know, it's that kind of concept. Absolutely. I think it's fantastic to have um, people sharing their experiences and yeah. these sorts of things because... I think when you can listen to other people exposing their own blind spots and learnings and frustrations, we're all the same in many ways um, with the things that we experience. We might have different preferences of how we want to experience them, but we we have so many things that are similar in what we experience, but we can learn from each other to how to survive them and thrive in those environments better than it, better than we can by ourselves. So what I really enjoyed about um, seeing you give talks and people talk about you um, in your leadership role is that um, they were saying just how empowered you make them feel. Hmm. And I thought that was beautiful. Um, I can I Thank can you for the feedback. And... Um, and kind of what I learnt from listening to that, and this is particularly um, South, Brisbane South Bank. Brisbane South Bank. Brisbane South Bank and, and um, Janine. Janine Watson. Yeah, Janine Watson, who's the CEO, um, gave her this really lovely speech. And I was thinking the same thing for myself too. And I, and I was trying to work out what the qualities were that you had that allowed that to happen because it's very subtle it's not very direct and I don't know exactly what it is but it could be those things that you talk about questions feedback or it's just and you talk about empathy so this is where I want to kind of end the podcast it's about empathy and leadership because we often those two words often don't go together because people think of it as soft do you know what I mean when it's actually quite hard skill because if you can actually draw out the best in people, you get the synergistic interaction of their brain function. Mm. And 100 brains are way better than one, always. 
yeah, just from everything I know about how the brain works. Mirror neurons, you know, we won't go into any of that in this podcast, but but basically, you know, and I, it's kind of ephemeral mm. in some sense, but it's actually real. Mm. Mm. And, and you probably don't even notice it because you've been doing it for so long, but it's just, it, I think people would really, it's, it'd be so great to work out a little tool that people could have to start to practice doing that. Well, I think practicing is the key thing. I mean, thank you for your feedback. And I've had feedback like that from others. And I don't see that in myself. But I think the positive reinforcement from others of of that being how they feel in those situations, which comes as a reaction to the practicing different ways of leading with different people. There's, there's no easy answers to any of this. It's It's all simple, but not easy one might say. So I think that might be, might be a nice place to end. Um, thank you for uh, joining us and giving us all those beautiful skills and tools. I think this is just the beginning of a conversation. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a delight to be um, able to share this conversation with you and I really admire your podcast. I recommend it to everybody. Yes, yeah, so I've subscribed. Or should, I think everyone should. Yes, well, if anyone else is interested in um, supporting the podcast so we don't have to put any advertisements on, and because I, I really don't want to do that, um, it's called The Shining Mind Podcast. You can support it on Patreon, which is this amazing website that supports um, artists and creators and other people so that they can um, keep doing what they're doing to help other people. So, thank you. <laughs>